the democratic debate, illegal immigration, and going for it in 2020. These are topics on this episode of By Faith, the unscripted, unedited podcast by Lisa Noel Babbage. I haven't been able to do a podcast lately because as you can tell by my voice, I have been under the weather for quite some time. So grin and bear it as you struggle through to listen uh, this evening. I just wanted to say that after watching the Democratic debate, a flood of emotion uh, came over me in a way that I can't say I've ever truly experienced before. Of course, like many people my age, we've watched many a debate on both sides. Um, even here in Georgia in the midterms, we I heard a debate that included a libertarian candidate. And I always find it fascinating to hear um, candidates go back and forth between their platform and their personal ideals. I guess being a former debate club member from high school has not worn off over the years. But I was astounded to see what what I interpreted as the Democratic candidates um, guiding, if you will, the conversation toward a few. Uh, On Twitter, I indicated that it seemed as if the other candidates were setting uh, former mayor Pete Buttigieg up for a win. Uh, His talk time, for example, was extensive compared to the other candidates. Um, Yang, who uh, attempts to be the voice of reason in those that were presented in that debate, received very little talk time. And Elizabeth Warren has her own, you know, path that she's chanting, but in more than one occasion, it appeared that is that uh, Bernie Sanders uh, even bided to a certain degree, and of course Amy, all um, patted each other on the back, so to speak. There was none of the mud raking that we've seen in previous presidential debates on the Democratic side. For example, Hillary and uh, Biden went at each other. Other candidates, uh, Kamala Harris, Cory Booker, went at each other. This uh, debate, which was in New Hampshire, uh, saw these candidates being much more cordial. You know, there was the occasional zinger, if you will, but it was so uh, tempered compared to what we've seen in the past that it honestly reminded me of a campfire kumbaya in the way that these candidates were sharing their quote-unquote plans to ultimately defeat Donald Trump. Their plans were less about America, more about the fact that Donald Trump was recently acquitted and the horror that they felt by the vote which uh, gave him the edge and the pardon, ultimately. And what we what we saw in that debate was candidates who were voicing their own personal uh, affliction at the results of the impeachment and what they intended to do to undo what Donald Trump has done over the last three and will be four years by the time our our next elections are carried out. And the question that evaded this entire platform of highly educated 
very wealthy people, as well as George Stephanopoulos and everyone else um, at ABC, was the fact that what Donald Trump has done in the last three years may be irritating to some, but it has changed the economy of our nation. And one of the candidates uh, kept referring to, I believe his name was Trey, but anyway, one of the candidates, a businessman, said, it's all about economics, stupid. It's about the economics. It's about the economy, stupid. And if he challenged the Democrats to say that if we don't beat Donald Trump on economic measures, then we won't win. And, and there is some truth to that, obviously, because Donald Trump has done what no other president has done uh, in recorded history, in the history of our nation. He has turned numbers around with regard to our gross domestic product, with regard to the way communities are run, with regard to the way businesses uh, come back to our shores. And I myself, like many people, have been the victim of corporations who have gone offshore and laid off uh, entire communities of people. We've seen um, and manufacturing and industrial jobs leave America, but are now coming back. In fact, that tide began to turn uh, as soon as Donald Trump took office, if not right after the election, uh, weeks before he was actually inaugurated. So uh, the Democrats who want to undo what they believe the injustices are committed by this administration failed to recognize the justices that are undeniable. And many of them not only have to do with economics, but have to do with race relations in this country uh, through the First and Second Step Act. They have to do with race relations regarding abortion, the fact that Planned Parenthood and other abortion providers uh, target indiscriminately target African-American communities for services, quote-unquote, that end in the extermination of a people. And we've heard stories, and I don't know how much people lend credence to it. I don't know how much the story is getting out, but the, the fact that the sheer numbers of immigrants, people are coming to this country with four and five children, and Americans are having fewer and fewer children. Um, generational Americans are having fewer and fewer children. And for African Americans, we are exterminating ourselves. It is a black genocide. And so the numbers, the, the bargaining power, if you will, that African Americans once had in this country or had the opportunity to have has been overshadowed by immigrants who are coming here with much larger families. And Caucasians are, are at risk as well because, uh, you know, many um, cultures still have much larger families than Americans have been having for years. And so it's simple math uh, as we continue to let immigrants come in from um, countries where we're allowing people to overstay their visas, where we're allowing people to um, remain in the country without being documented, even while the changes in our immigration policy uh, must happen. 
as far as streamlining the process, the fact of the matter is there are more people here that are not even a part of the process of becoming citizens. And they have with them uh, families that are extensive, not just children, but aunts, uncles, grandparents, cousins. And as a teacher, I know firsthand that many of the families come in, their children have health problems. And, um, you know, there's a significant portion of those children who uh, receive health insurance from the state, uh, Medicare, Medicaid, these types of social services do put a drain on our economy. But the point of this whole debate and and the debacle that has happened is that African Americans, Americans of African descent, the descendants of slaves, are, are disproportionately affected by this immigration process and the immigration problem that we find ourselves facing. Now, I was uh, fortunate enough, if you will, to hear uh, an American of Mexican descent speak today regarding what's happening in Texas and what happens on the border. And this gentleman has a radio show and he talks freely about immigration from the historical concept of what happened with migrant workers in what was formerly part of Mexico, the Texas, the California, the Arizona, the New Mexico area. And I remember as a teenager in Arizona seeing migrant workers travel across. In fact, we, uh, one, a group that I belong to, um, which is part of the Rotary in uh, Arizona, painted a uh, daycare center for migrant workers. And I mean, that was a significant uh, part of the economy, those, those workers that came in seasonally, some day laborers, but they lived and resided in Mexico along border towns, and they were Mexican citizens. And it was a common practice that they would travel freely to come for work and return to their own homes and towns. They did not vote in America. They didn't want to vote in America. They simply came for a wage. Many of them worked for a, a lesser um, per hour or per diem than American citizens. And that was a bargain that they were willing to I'm not saying it's right at all, but that was a bargain they were willing to take. And they went back to their communities uh, the better for it because they were making much more than they would have made in Mexico. And, you know, folks on the West Coast are familiar with the stories of, you know, the tough decisions that teenagers have to make in impoverished communities like Mexico City, like those border towns even more so than Mexico City, um, where they have to uh, make a decision to work or stay in school or if they're going to leave their family and seek work elsewhere. But that border was very fluid for much of America's history. And it wasn't until around 2012 that, um, and probably a couple of years before that, but in 2012, uh, the Democratic Party especially started making decisions about how 
quote-unquote undocumented citizens would be treated. That, that word, that term undocumented citizens did not exist prior to about 2012. And, and you have to kind of scratch your head and wonder what was happening politically and reflect back what was happening politically at that time that the shift would take place in the American vernacular regarding immigration. You know, prior to that, citizens who came over and were not day laborers, were not part of that community of migrant workers that I just described. These are people who are coming in to stay, um, but do not necessarily have any desire to become American citizens. Uh, You know, those folks were always referred to as illegal aliens, alien residents, um, uh, you know, who, who had citizenship in other nations. These, this term illegal alien is used in not only our legal system, but in documentation upon documentation and globally even, because, uh, you know, even uh, when we go to visit Australia, we're having to you know, part of my family is an Australian citizen, the others are not, and they are um, aliens to that land. And so this is a common uh, term and vernacular that is used. But the gentleman that spoke today was just illustrating the fact that the fluidity of our southern border for all those generations caused it to to be uh, somewhat neglected. And, you know, I have some stories about border crossings that I won't share now, but, you know, it makes me shudder to think of what is happening. You know, there are certain, most people on the East Coast have never seen the Rio Grande, but there are certain parts of of the Rio Grande, which is our natural border between Mexico and the United States that are literally only a few feet wide and and they are not deep it is not deep at all any child can cross in those certain areas now we've seen horrific pictures of of people drowning in the Rio Grande of people being trapped um, either because of the federales or or because of border patrol or you know because of a smuggler that's tried to bring them in but there are literally parts of the Rio Grande where where anybody could cross um, and it's just a, a you know a few feet deep I, mean, I have pictures of my children playing in this water um, when they were younger so you know it there the border it has been unsecure for for many years but it wasn't until uh the democratic party changed that that wording regarding illegal aliens to the term undocumented immigrants and and decided that it was okay if those immigrants are extended voting rights here here here's the problem if someone is fleeing economic persecution and they basically need money, they need food, they need housing, they need a job. That's a human need, a basic human need. And America has demonstrated over the course of a generation the fact that we send foreign aid to countries to help with those basic human needs. We take money out of taxpayers' pockets, and we give it to people who are in second and third world countries because their need is greater. Not not to even address the disparages that are here in our own backyard. We ignore those for the greater good of humanity. And America has done that for a generation. But it's when you decide that uh, an illegal immigrant is now, quote unquote, this 
undocumented immigrant and they should be given voting rights. You take away the value of citizenship and you corrupt our voting and political process uh, in that process of attempting to redefine what it means to be an American voter. And that really is at the crux of this wordplay that the Democratic candidates were using in the recent debates. All of this is wordplay. And you can look at California, for example. There's no doubt in my mind that Nancy Pelosi's of the world have orchestrated and are turning a blind eye to illegal immigration problems and and the other community ailments that we have because this corrupt and failed system of propaganda and um, unenforced laws has allowed them to be re-elected time and time again. There was a statistic in 2018 that said that uh, there were more there were more votes cast in the California elections than there are registered voters. So basically what we're, or we're talking about is that you have illegal aliens who have come in either with um, falsified documents, no documents whatsoever, but that the voting process has been corrupt. And you see people like Nancy Pelosi get elected year after year after year. And there's no question in my mind that the reason why she is so adamant about not even being able to celebrate um, some of the things that were brought up in the State of the Union address is because her life, her way of being, her her manner of life is on the line because it's tied up in this corruption and propaganda. So there, she has to tear up the president's speech. She has to force her people to dress in white. She has to do everything she can to paint uh, conservatives as liars because if the truth be known, her life will change. So it's very personal to her. It has nothing to do with quote unquote blacks, whites, immigrants, you know, uh, homosexuals, whatever so-called subgroup that she's championing. It has nothing to do with them. It has something to do with Nancy Pelosi, her own uh, uh, self-worth, her own uh, fortunes in her own way of life. So that's what she's trying to maintain. And because, you know, tearing up that document doesn't help anyone. It's nothing but a show. And, and, and this whole um, regime has become nothing but a theatrical rendition of um, some sort of political bias. There is no truth in it. And, and I'm not saying that to champion Donald Trump. Let's get that clear. The point that I'm making is you cannot deny the positive changes that have happened in the last three years, just like no one can deny the fact that blacks are still in a worse off situation by and large than uh, immigrant populations that are coming in. And, you know, there's a lot that you can do with statistics. Uh, you know, it's one reason I love statistics, because it can it can really work for you depending on how you set up your data points. And we can say that an immigrant family comes to America and their standard of living is raised to 300%. And that sounds um, 
uh, excessive, but you have to compare it to what was happening before. Um, however, I know many immigrant families who have come here and their standard of living has decreased, but they come here for the potential of an even greater increase. And those are the kinds of immigrants who are going about a legal process. And I, I mean, they come from all over. They come from Africa. They come from India. They come from Asia. They come from all over. And these are, you know, people who have been classically trained in their native country as educators, as doctors, as lawyers. And they're willing to come here for less money, knowing that once they are recredentialed by United States standards, that their uh, potential for income dramatically increases and the safety of their family dramatically increases and the freedoms that their family their children and their future generations are afforded dramatically increases and they're willing to take that temporary setback for a better setup. But there's still an equal, if not more, number of immigrants who come here without that purpose in mind. And those are the ones who are burdening our culture. And so for us to... um, not delineate between the immigrant populations that are coming here. We really do ourselves a a disservice, statistically speaking. Uh, What were my other topics? I wanted to talk about going forward in 2020. I I heard this great analogy, and I probably will not recall it correctly, but uh, it ties into immigration, which is why I wanted to mention it. And if you think about uh, the idea of someone who is seeking freedom, you can see a child, for example. Um, I recently became a grandmother, and I see my child, uh, my grandchild, yearning to first crawl and then yearning to walk. And the, the effort that he puts forth on a regular basis without anyone instructing him to. It's an innate desire to be mobile. You know, it it actually preceded him crawling, you know, just the holding of the head up, the moving of the limbs and controlling his gestures now to crawling and eventually to walking uh, unassisted. These are the milestones that every baby makes. And I'm sitting here watching him and noting that when I try to hold him down or when his mother tries to hold him down to change his diaper, to give him a bath, to tend to the necessities in life, he wants to go. He wants to be mobile. And we literally have to wrestle him to put his diaper on. And anyone that's had an active baby uh, can, can recall what this is like as the child tries to wiggle out of the outfit or wiggle out of the diaper or wiggle out of the towel. And, and that desire to be mobile is one that is hard to crush. Immigrants are that way. Immigrants that are truly seeking asylum or truly um, looking for that American dream, they're not going to stop at a wall. They're not going to stop at a border. They're going to keep coming. But believe it or not, there's actually fewer people like that who have a heart to be Americans than there are people who just have a heart to come, take advantage of a system, and then leave. And, you know, unless you have immigrants in your family, unless you've, you know, been friends Uh, close family friends with immigrant families and you've heard these stories, you may not be aware of what that, that drive is like 
to uh, for freedom, that drive for life. And, you know, there are people like that who deserve a, a type of asylum. Now, it may not be asylum in the United States, but definitely we value hum- humanity. We value human life as Americans and as a Christian. I don't want to see anyone hungry anywhere, which is why I routinely give to organizations who feed children and families where they are. The, the truth of the matter is, is that just like in your own house, There can be a hungry person on the street, but you do not necessarily invite him into your house. You can feed him where he is, or you can take him to a place that has facilities for him. Because if you invite everyone to your house, your house will be overrun, and you will have no ability to provide that assistance that your heart desired. Even when you're on an airplane, they tell you to put the mask on yourself first. And America has not put the mask on its own citizens. We have veterans in this country that are hungry in need of medical and mental health services. We have families, we have uh, children who are in foster care and have no place to go when they age out. We have uh, We have children whose parents are incarcerated and they are growing up deficient and actually becoming a burden on society because they didn't have the proper child rearing. We have so many people in America that are citizens born here for generation upon generation, and no one's put the mask on these people. So when we try to put the mask on illegal immigrants or those who come over even legally, we are cutting short our way of life because we are ill-equipped to deal with the volume in our own home. What we should be doing instead is going into these communities and making sure that the governments actually disperse the food, the aid that is sent, going into these communities and actually as oversight, making sure that the, the buildings are built up to code. You know, for example, what's happening in the Dominican Republic versus what's happening in Haiti. This is a prime example on the same exact island. You have one country devastated and decimated by every storm that comes through. And we have another country that is quote unquote thriving by the standards in that region. Um, All on the border, all on our southern border, there's numerous towns that are third world countries. And uh, it shows, it shows you have teenagers, you have 12 year old children who are (coughs) selling bubble gum on the side of the road to tourists. And we can be setting up homeless shelters. We could be setting up uh, facilities. We could be setting up work camps right there on the border so that they don't have to leave the culture that they love (coughs) and the people that they love and the language that they uh, speak to be in a, um, a, a system that, let's face it, they don't always feel comfortable in. If America were playing their cards right, instead of just giving a blank check to these governments who are uh, overrun with corruption, you know, just just shy of our own, we should be utilizing these uh, nonprofit organizations. We should be setting up uh, ways and means to implement what that money should be used for so that not everyone has to come to our house in order to get help. They can be helped right where they are. And the fact of the matter is why why I've said numerous times that I'm for building a wall for the most, um, for the most 
determined immigrant, a wall will not stop them. And, and that's something that America has to come to, to terms with. 40% of illegal immigrants in this country right now did not come across that southern border. They came on a plane. So, you know, a wall is not the answer to every problem that we have regarding immigration. We've got to look at this with a much broader lens that most Americans have not even allowed themselves to um, contemplate just because the problem seems uh, very simple, but it's not. It is much more complex than we've given ourselves credit for understanding. And unfortunately, we have elected uh, people time and time again that really don't have, one, a vested interest in seeing the problem solved, and two, they don't have the personal empathy to make decisions that are in the best interest of human beings and you do have to as cruel as it may sound you do have to put a hierarchy on that has to be american citizens first and the rest of the world second and you even will you know can delineate out when i say the rest of the world obviously america cannot be the savior of of the world there is only one savior that's jesus christ and it's when america tries to be every other country's savior that we get ourselves in a bigger trouble we've got to clean up our own house got to get our own yard in order and then step by step where there is abundance go into the world and spread the good news but first things first everything in decency and order and that's where we've really failed ourselves and and unfortunately um, folks who are self-seeking, self-centered individuals like the Nancy Pelosi's of the world have not made it easy for the folks like Donald Trump and and others who are looking to be inclusive, but to also be logical and fair to the generations and the families who have paid into our American system to make it as attractive as it is right now. And, you know, there's so many young kids in our um, country who are burdened with student loan debt. And while the Dems will say, let's just forgive all that debt, you're not really, they're not really thinking about the implications of these sweeping social justice programs that they are advertising as the answer, the, the savior, quote unquote, of the situation. That's not how a government nor family runs. And it's definitely not the way um, our nation will run considering what we're facing. Uh, with the opioid addiction, what we're facing with immigration, what we're facing with terrorists around the world. That's not that's not the way we do business. And it's really easy for us to say that Obama kept us out of various conflicts. He buyed us. He bought us, indebted us, um, weakened our economy in order to quote unquote buy off. It's, it was blood money. It's nothing, it's no different than what happened with the mobsters in Chicago and New York. He paid off funds that should have never been given to our enemies. And even now we are currently giving aid to countries that are our mortal enemies. And yes, there are people in those countries that need help. And it, and, but we cannot give that money to the government because the government, those state agencies in many cases are the ones that are f- uh, funding these terrorist organizations. So we have to find a better way around 
you know, the need to play God uh, globally that, you know, we have traditionally gotten ourselves in in the last 50 years or so, and the need to protect our own citizenry. You know, if we spent as much time figuring out how to protect our own citizenry as we do trying to strip our citizenry of gun ownership, we, we literally have things upside down right now. And it's going to take a whole new crop, you know, of, of legislators to come in and stop the madness that has been happening. And it's unfortunate, but we see establishment candidates on both sides of the aisle. And those establishment candidates are making backdoor and, and backhanded agreements that are based on green, greed, patting each other's wallets, power struggles. They're not about John Q. Public. And, and what is frustrating at times is when you can see um, these deals being made even on a local level, when you can see um, the corruption rearing its ugly head, how much worse so if these folks ever get to Washington, D.C., and they actually get the blank checks uh, by being a United States representative or senator. You know, that's, that's what we are not facing. You know, we, we can say a lot about what's happening on the news, but are we really looking with a clear eye at our local candidates, our local politicians, and seeing uh, where there's corruption there? I think we fail to do that by and large, which is why our nation is uh, as divided as it is. I mean, we, we see what Antifa's doing in Portland. We see what, you know, other groups are doing here and there. You know, even even in the South, I, I'm in Georgia. And to know that the Ku Klux Klan was allowed to, um, quote unquote, as free speech, march in, in various parades and have their, you know, little functions, that was turning a blind eye to corruption. Ku Klux Klan is a terrorist organization, aka they do not get free speech. And we have not drawn those hard and fast lines in this country for quite some time. And it's not because our leaders were um, decimated through assassination. That's not the reason why. Complacency is the reason why. We have, we have let it go this far, and now we've got to say no more. And that's what Trump is doing, which is why he offends everyone. But if more of us do not stand up and say, you know, this far and no more, we're going to see implosions of gargantuan proportions happening in this country, and eventually it will affect the economic bottom line. And I don't say that to be a doomsday. I say it as... Um, just a matter of fact, honestly, because uh, so many of us have become complacent and we can get the facts. We can be smarter than we've ever been as a people and yet dumb as a box of rocks because we don't stand up for our convictions. We don't stand up for our principles and we're too afraid to offend someone to tell the truth. And, you know, I, I, I hate to say that, um, 
it happened on my watch. I'd hate to say that it happened on my watch. And that's why I'm really proud of this last work. You know, um, for me, um, writing has always been uh, a great therapeutic exercise, a great escape. Um, From my youngest recollections, I wrote um, as a form of pastime. I never intended to put my name to anything or to make anything public. It was merely for my own enjoyment. And when I was in high school, I did begin writing um, for a few close friends or shared with a few close friends. But again, there was nothing that was ever meant to be public. But this, this last work, The Black History Bible, um, which has a brilliant subtitle, if I do say so myself, How the Democratic Party Deceived a People, I, you know, I, there could be a sequel to this book because it's not just the Democratic Party that, that deceived. There's been deception um, throughout our nation's history. But specifically what I'm targeting is the fact that our friends on the left side of the aisle have become our enemies. And I don't say that for every quote-unquote registered Democrat. I say it for the the party platform. I say it for those who are uh, knowingly and willingly attempting to destroy our nation. And it may not be more than a handful of people, but those handful of people are elected and represented by the masses, and that handful of people have the means and ways to continue to propagate this this theory of victimization and this theory of, you know, mass racism and this theory of um, conservatism as being criminal. We've got to stand up and say this far and no more. To abortion. We've got to stand up and say this far and no more to the propaganda that divides our nation. We've got to find the common ground and look at the statistics, the facts behind our expenditures and realize we can't afford to do a lot of the things we'd like to do. We've got to tighten the belt because canceling out student loan debt And adding that debt to our national budget has solved no one's problem in the long run. It may stop collection calls, but it has solved no one's problem. So if we don't look at this thing with a clearer eye, with a Main Street type eye, uh, we are setting ourselves up for, for destruction because it's like a sinking ship that's being overrun. Um, and it's just going to go down a little faster when when you continue to let people add additional uh, concerns or wrenches in an already broken um, pipeline. And that's what we're dealing with right now. So, so much to think about, but I'm thankful that, you know, round three of... President Trump's 12 rounds to victory has concluded. I look forward to round four and to see what the Democrats and and whomever else wants to throw at him as we continue through this uh, record-breaking year. Um, But I feel very confident that our election process will prevail and that we will see 
different kinds of candidates make their way to Washington, D.C., because frankly, you know, based on the number of people who are retiring, based on the number of people who are having to pull out for whatever reason, this crop of freshman representatives, especially, and senators, will definitely change the game, uh, just like Donald Trump has, and it will be a very uh, exciting and tumultuous process that I myself am looking quite forward to. This has been By Faith with Lisa Noel Babbage, the unscripted, unedited podcast, and I bid you adieu.